Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to our Wednesday night journey through the Bible. We're excited to be able to be here, and tonight we're going to have a time of communion after the message. So if you're watching online, I would encourage you to, to get some bread and maybe a, a, a little cup that you can set aside for that communion time. Even though you're not here, you can join us in, in that time of fellowship. Tonight we're going to spend some time worshiping the Lord. We're going to take a look at the rest of Hebrews chapter 10 and chapter 11, and then we're going to have a time of communion. So let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for tonight. I thank you that we can be in your presence. Lord, I, I also pray for Israel even now. And having heard that they had found another 32 of the hostages uh, are dead, and they're expecting to find the other, uh, another group of 20 dead, I pray for those grieving families. And I pray for peace. Lord, we know that you've called us to pray for the peace of, of Jerusalem, the peace of Israel. We know that that's not going to happen until you, Prince of Peace, Lord Jesus, come. So come, Lord Jesus. But till then, may we continue to be about your business here and abroad, and may we continue to share your word. But tonight, Lord, we want to focus on you about real faith. And, and what does it mean to be faithful as we study these sections in Hebrews? And Lord, we also want to honor you through communion at your table. Prepare our hearts to be before the throne of grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Tasted and seen 
to come together and, and worship your name, God. And just keep your presence here as we gather in your name. And just open our hearts, open our minds, and be with us as we listen to your word and be with us as we take communion and just focus on you, God. And just remove all those distractions from us so we can focus on you. Just watch over this house as we're here to worship you and be with Pastor Carrie. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, as we continue our journey. We only have a few more chapters that we're going to be in Hebrews, and then we're going to move on to James. And as we study this, we've slowed our pace down a little bit in our study with 
Hebrews because one, it's it's a little bit more difficult of a book to to move through, and you know it's like going to a really good steakhouse. You want to, you want to be able to enjoy it and and have our time with that. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people that are in danger of of leaving their faith. These are Jewish believers who are in danger of are leaving and going back to their old. Uh, system of sacrifice in the Jewish system because a lot of the persecution was becoming very difficult. It was becoming hard to to follow after Christ. And with that, there was a whole gamut of, of believers. There was Jewish Christians and then there was those that were pre-Christian that were all part of the group. And so within that, the writer's really talking to a broad audience of those that that have forgotten all of the blessings and the things that they've experienced. There's a verse in... in Chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Every Christ follower should be maturing. You should be growing in your faith. In fact, if you're not growing in your faith, then you can become like a muscle that's not used, atrophy, where, where you start shrinking back and you're not exercising that. And I love the fact that on, on midweek we journey through the Bible and, and we're growing in our faith. This section in Hebrews is opening up another section as we move into chapter 12. And it really focuses on the privileges that we have. Do you realize how privileged you and I are as a Christ follower? To be able to have access, full access, free access to God, to, to the throne room of grace, to heaven. Prior to Christ, they didn't have that. There was not the ability to be able to be in the presence of God, to know your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus made that way. He provided that way into the throne room of God to give us full access because of the cross. And now we have the right and the privilege. You can go to God and you can pray right where you're at, wherever you're at. And you don't have to go through a building or through a priest or through a sacrifice or, or you, you don't have to go, hey, I want to talk to God. Let me go get an animal, kill it and, and then bring it to the priest and then tell the priest and they can move forward. And we can approach God, as we're going to see in verses 19 to 25, full of faith. Satan wants you to be scared. Satan wants you to feel that you are not adequate to go to God. Satan wants to remind you of all of your past behavior, your sins, and all of those things, and hang them over your head, and hinder your relationship with God within that. As a child of God, you are free of guilt. You have free access. And that's hard. Many times we know that God's forgiven us, but have we forgiven ourselves? And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we look at the ability to be able to be in that place. And we need to lay hold of that fact regularly. Why? Because Satan wants to remind us regularly of what a dirty, rotten sinner that we are. And we can remind him, no, I'm saved by grace. And that Jesus paid that price for my sin. He wants to keep you under the bondage of guilt. And Jesus had already set you free. One of the other things that we'll see in verses 26 to 39 is a stern warning. And there's a balance. 
when God's word's taught, it needs to be taught with balance. We have a God of love and we have a God of grace, but we also have a God of holiness and righteousness within that. And we want the God of love and grace, but we really don't want the God of judgment. And, and yet God can't be separated from who he is, and he is both. These, these Jews that were in danger of falling away, and even some of the unbelievers, were walking away from the only thing that would save them. Walking away from and abandoning their faith. And in our, our culture today, are we seeing uh, apostasy within the churches? People walking away from churches and walking away from faith? For sure, we see that. And, and we see people not only walking away from faith, but walking away from true faith. And they're entertaining the doctrines of demons and false doctrines and false teachings that, that are infecting the church and corrupting the truth of God's Word within that. In fact, later on in our study tonight, we're going to take a look at three creeds. And, and, and I'm going to give you the reason why we were given these creeds by the early church within that. God made sacrifices available to atone for our sins. And to help us understand that we are a sinner. But when Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, came, He replaced all the animal sacrifice with Himself. And our sins have been atoned for. But the thing is, these, these Jews, they were wanting to go back to the old system. Back to the old system, where the sacrificial system, where they were going to have to continually... Sacrifice again. And we talked last week about it being a constant reminder of the fact that you're a sinner. And that's what the old sacrificial system does. Could you imagine having all of your sins written on your forehead and every day when you got up and looked in the mirror, all of your sins were written across your forehead? And when you look in the mirror, that's what you see. You know, liar, cheat, adulterer. All the different things written on your forehead every time you get up and you, you were constantly reminded whenever you look in the mirror. And that's what the law was. The law was a mirror to reflect to us our sin. Why? So that we would know that we, were a sa- that we needed a Savior. But when Jesus came and died and atoned for those sins, He erased all of those sins, washed us and made us clean. And now when you get up and you look into the mirror, you don't even see you. You see a reflection of Jesus. Jesus is the one, the image that you've been conformed to. One of the dangers, though, that was part of the, the, the Jewish sacri- sacrifice and the system was a dangerous assumption, and, and, and we'll look at that again, too. The dangerous assumption is this. I can go out and sin, willfully, go out and sin, and then just go get a couple animals and take them to the priest and let them slaughter them. And my sins are taken care of. That's the presumption of forgiveness. Willful disobedience with a presumption of forgiveness. That, that would be kind of like saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to go sin and then I'm going to go and I'm going I'm to say a couple of prayers and pay some money and do whatever I want to do. And then all my sins are absolved. No. No. That's an abuse of forgiveness, and that is not the forgiveness that Jesus gives to us. That's under this old religious system. Man creates a way for man to atone for man's sins through religion. God has made the way that sins will be forgiven by His Son, Jesus. 
not by anything that you do, but by grace and through faith. And faith is going to be the cornerstone of that assurance of salvation. Embedded in our text also is this concept of a, of a lesser or greater. And we're going to see a comparison between the law of Moses and what was part of that and the judgment that came for violating the law of Moses and the potential judgment for violating the grace of God within that. And so we've got to come back to the question, if we are in Christ, how should we live? If you are a believer in Christ, how should you live? Should you go back to the old religious system or should you live the new life? So we're going to dive right in. And how to live that full life in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25 says this. Therefore, and again, Bible students, whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask the question, what? What's it there for? <laughs> Which causes you to go back to the previous verses. And he says this in verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. He says that in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sins. Now, there is no longer any need for any offering of sin. Therefore, live that new life. Brethren, we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through flesh, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, note, and note the let us, there's three of them. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what is he saying? The author is writing to this, and he says, look it. Therefore, because you don't have to go back to the old style of forgiveness and sacrificial system, let's live that new life. Old things are passed away. All things become new in Christ within this. There's no need to go back. One of the things that we know in living the new life is having full confidence. Full confidence. Full confidence means that right now, because of what Jesus has done, you would have no problem standing before a holy God. Do you have that confidence? Now, I probably would fall on my face. But there really isn't technically any need other than out of reverence and honor. Not because I'm a sinner, but because he's holy God and he deserves the worship as such. But also a future confidence. And, and having confidence in living in this world is important. You know, so many times the world beats us down and gets us to this place where we've lost our confidence. We've lost our confidence in standing for the truth. We've lost our confidence in standing holy. We've lost our confidence in standing in the Word and believing in a creed and declaring it. Christians should be the most vocal people about the truth and the truth of God's Word and not allow the world to overshout you and, and, and tell you their lies and say that, you know, that, that you're biased or you're unloving. God is the most loving 
being that has ever lived. Do you think about God's love? He could have zapped us out of existence a long time ago, couldn't he? But he doesn't. Why? Because he's gracious and he's kind and he's loving. And he's given us a hope and a confidence of that hope that shouldn't be shaken. Because of the work of the cross, we can live this new way of life. Not according to the old way, where we were under guilt and condemnation. Before the cross, what was man's best hope for being holy? Offering an acceptable sacrifice. What would happen if that sacrifice was not deemed acceptable by God? It was rejected and your sin would remain. Do you realize that you are not burdened with having to try to offer any sacrifice because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice? And you can have full confidence that 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 sacrifice was accepted for you on your behalf. Under the old covenant, under the old covenant, anybody that was following Yahweh God was kept separate and had to offer an animal sacrifice and go to the priest and the priest had to go on their behalf. Why? Because there was no confidence in going before God because you would die. No one could be in that place. One of the dangers of the Old Testament worship, as I said, is the perpetual offering. Having to go time and time and time again. You know, you think about that. Oh, I sinned. I, I had bad thoughts. I've got to go get a dove and I've got to go take care of that. Oh, I cheated my neighbor out his money. I've got to give it back to him and I've got to give back double because the law says I've got to do that. And all of these things. And you're always, it's the law, it's the law, it's the law overshadowing you within that. And for every instance of of sin and rebellion, you would have to go and offer another sacrifice. Where Jesus opened up full access to God. And it's not a free-for-all where you get to sin willingly. But to know that by grace, when Jesus died, His blood cleanses us from all sin, past, present, and future. And you have continual access. Now, should we pray to God and confess our sins? Yes. But New Testament believers, when they confess their sins, what they're doing is they're saying the same thing about their sin that God says. God, this is what I did. And he goes, I know. And it was a violation against you. Yeah, I know. Will you forgive me? Already did. Now let's get on with it. It doesn't mean that we get to abuse grace and we get to abuse forgiveness. What it means is, is that we don't have to jump through religious hoops and hope that it will be good enough. You are perfected because of what Jesus has given to us through his sacrifice. He's provided that access and the assurance of faith. I talk with people, and you probably do too, where people will say, well, I don't know if I'm forgiven. Other people will say, well, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know. You know, I asked Jesus in my heart and I asked Him to forgive me of my sins, but I'm really just, I just don't know. We have an assurance of faith and He says that we can have a confidence to enter the holy place, verse 20, to live this new and living way. And because we have the high priest that's already taken care of us, verse 22, He says this, Let us draw near with a sincere heart full of assurance of faith. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. That word sincere talks about, in Greek, it means literally without wax. 
In, in the culture, they would have these marble statues, but if you chiseled off the nose or the ear and you messed up, they'd take wax and they would form the image and put it back on. And so when they would go to sell them, they would put these signs on pure, and instead of pure, it would be sincere without wax. When the sun come up, the wax would melt off, and then you know it was flawed. That's what that implies. It's this idea of coming with a pure heart. Even if you, you really just blew it, when you come to God with a pure heart, He accepts you. And you can be brokenhearted, as David was, but also in that psalm, a broken and contrite heart, God's not going to reject. We know our sin is before us, but we can have the assurance of faith that provides freedom to come without fear within that. Respect, yes. Terror, no. In Colossians 1, 21, 22, it says this. And although you were formerly, and I love this verse. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If you look at that verse clearly, formally, past tense, do we agree? Past tense, formally. You were formerly in this condition, alienated, hostile, evil in deeds. Yet now he's reconciled, banking term. He has united us into this. And you say, well, how does that work? By faith and accepting that forgiveness, we are united into the body of Christ, reconciled to him. So the righteousness of Christ has reconciled for us our sins. And so now when God sees us, he sees us reconciled, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ that's been put on our account. So when God looks at your account, he's not seeing a list of sin. He's seeing it clean because of the righteousness of Christ that has been put on that account for you. As he says before you him in him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God sees you holy. How is it that I can have full assurance to go before a holy God? How can you go before a holy God? Because in Christ you are holy. In Christ, you are holy. And that is, a, that is a truth that God says in His Word. And it can't be taken away. And in the Old Covenant, the priesthood was a man, a sinner, just like everybody else. And he had to offer sacrifice, as we studied last week, for himself before he can go before the people. But we have a high priest that has ripped open the veil into the throne room of God and says, come on in. You can picture this in your mind as this high priest, Jesus, who has removed that veil. And we can come before him with sincerity of heart. And so how should we, do, we live? Well, we should draw near with this assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled and cleansed and washed in the water. What does that mean? Five things. Never worry again about being forsaken by God. That's powerful. Never worry about being forsaken by God. God will never leave you, nor will He forsake you. Why? Because you're in Christ. Never worry again about not having an eternal future. Why? Because you're 
in Christ. Never again worry about bothering God in prayer. (laughs) Why? Because He wants to hear your prayers. That's our communication with our Heavenly Father. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. Many of you have seen me carry around this little nine-month, almost nine-month-old bundle. My granddaughter. And, you know, the thing is, she, she's got my heart. She's got me wrapped. I, I confess. She's, she's got me. She could be doing anything with her mom or her grandma, but when she, she will see me and her arms go out, and it's what, I, I can't discipline her. I can't do anything. It's just, okay, come on, let's go. Let's go get some cake. But she didn't eat her dinner. That's okay. She can have cake. Why? And she's never a bother, even though she did eat my lunch today. But that's okay. It's not a bother. Why? Because we have a Heavenly Father and He wants to hear our prayers. Never again worry about having value. You never, ever have to worry about having value. Why? Because God loves you so much, He gave His only Son for you. You are the most... If you were the only one, Jesus would still come. You say, well, that's hard to believe. It's the truth. How can I accept that? God said it. God is not willing that any should perish. All should come to repentance. If you were the only one, you have great value. Jesus died for you. You are not one of the masses. You are the one. You are a child of God. He knows your name and the very hairs that are on your head. Although for some, He doesn't have to count very far. You never again have to worry about unforgiveness. We're told in Scripture that God casts our sins as far as what? The east is from the west. And He remembers them no more. Does that mean that God's got dementia or Alzheimer's? No. It's a choice. He does not remember Him against our account anymore. This comes from a relationship in a new and living way with God. The problem with the readers of this letter that the author was writing to is they were abandoning this amazing relationship and going back to an old traditional religion that, w- that never promised any of this. And, and it, it, it's crazy. Hebrews 4.16 reiterates, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? That word so that in Greek is hena, it's a henna clause. It's a purpose clause. So that we may have mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You say, well, what does that mean? Let us draw near to the throne of grace. When I'm hurting. When I'm frustrated. When I'm depressed. When I'm anxious. When I'm grieving. When, when I am destitute. Let me draw near to this throne of grace. Why? Because God pours out His grace upon grace upon grace. You say, well, I don't want to bother God. No, you'll offend Him by not coming to Him. He wants to give to you. He wants to care for you within that. And we can do that. Old religion and, and, and the Levitical, the Aaronic system never promised that. What did it see God's throne as? The old system saw the throne as a throne of judgment. 
Old Testament system saw the throne of God as a throne of judgment. Jesus opened the veil and provides a throne of grace. And we have that access. And we can have confidence. So we need to hold fast, as he says, in the next one. Verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Now we look at this confession and our confession of faith. I love that Mark and Jessica picked that first song that we sang. It's called The Creed. I got to tell you, we did not plan that. But what I do have in my notes are three different creeds that you may or may not be familiar with. The historical church would write creeds for a purpose. Why? Creeds are not divinely inspired, but they are statements of faith based on Scripture, which is divinely inspired. Do you follow? So a creed is a declaration of what we believe. In fact, the word creed, credo, is Latin, and it literally says, I believe. Have you ever heard of the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed is a classic creed. The second creed that I'm going to read to you is called the Nicene Creed. Have you ever heard of that? Some, yes, some, no. If you grew up in the Lutheran church like I did... You had to memorize it. It was part of your catechism. And then you have the Athanasian Creed. All of these creeds were written at different times. The Apostles' Creed is not necessarily dated, but it's believed to be the first creed that was written just after the end of the New Testament at a time when they wanted to have a common declaration of the teaching of the church. I'm going to read it to you and listen to it. It's, It's one of the shorter of the creeds. It's interesting how... The creed started really small, and then they got bigger, and then they got bigger, and they got bigger. The Apostles' Creed goes like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost and the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of the sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. By the way, Catholic in that is not the denomination Catholic. It means universal. The Apostles' Creed declares the Trinity and the Apostles' Creed declares the redemptive work of Jesus. The Apostles' Creed declares the work of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Very simply. In A.D. 325, I'm sorry. uh, Yeah, in A.D. 325, another creed was written to reject Arianism. Arianism denied the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is not divine. So, in Athanasian Creed, what they did is they wrote a creed to declare the divinity of Jesus. And again, this is a creed, and it's a little bit longer, and it says this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father, 
before all ages, God of God, light of lights, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. He became flesh by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was also crucified for us, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to scriptures. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, and who spoke through the prophets and one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I await for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. A lot more theology in that creed. Very in-depth. But what was the emphasis? The emphasis was about Jesus. It piggybacked on the Apostles' Creed, but it really focused on Jesus. Why did they write it? Because what had happened is people were listening to deceptions and they were deviating from the truth and they were following into another faith system. And so we see that, that as Arianism was taking root, they needed to write a creed. The, the third creed um, that we take a look at is, I'm sorry, that was the Nicene Creed. The third creed we take a look at is the Athanasian Creed. And it was dealing with the Incarnation and the Trinity. And that was somewhere between 293 and 373. They're not quite sure of the exact date. And it goes like this. We believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at once both God and man. And He is God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the world. He is man of the substance of His mother, born in the world, perfect God, perfect man, of reasoning and soul and human flesh consisting, equal to the Father as touching His Godhead, less than the Father as touching His manhood, who although He being he be God and man, yet He is not two but one, or two but one Christ. One, however, not by changing the Godhead into flesh, but by taking manhood into God and altogether, not by confusion of substance, but unity of person. For as reasoning soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one in Christ, who suffered for the salvation, descended to the world below, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father to come, from thence to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies, and shall give an account to their own deeds, and that they have done good will for eternal life, that they have done evil to eternal fire. If you notice on that that Athanasian Creed, it really talks about the Incarnation. Why? Because if you remove the Incarnation of Christ, what ends up happening with the sacrifice for man's sin? It's gone. There is, there is no sacrifice for man's sin because if Jesus was not man, He was not the perfect sacrifice to die for mankind. And you say, well, why is this important? Because when you leave your confession of faith, when you have a deviant confession of faith, you start believing in a different God. And that's dangerous, isn't it? And so as this writer is writing to the Jewish Christians, he's saying to them, hold fast 
the simplicity of your confession of faith. Do you know what you believe? You should. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the Father? What do you believe about the Son? What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? What do you believe about salvation? What do you believe about sin? These are all called statements of faith. Our church has one. You're welcome to read it. It's on our website. We will give it to you. If you leave and you, and, and you attend another church, you're visiting another church, you, want to, you move or whatever, you want to go to a different church, the number one question you need to ask that church, can you hand to me your statement of faith as a church? And if they go, oh, we don't have one. What should you do? Yeah. Yeah. Leave. If, if, if that statement of faith is not clear and concise and biblical, then we've got problems. Why? Because they've left their confession of faith or a confession of faith that's different than what Scripture teaches. Ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about sin? These are all... These are all eternally important because if you start following something that that believes falsely it will affect your spiritual growth as a believer but for the unbeliever it will affect their eternity and so the writer says let us hold fast to the confession of our hope our faith without wavering for he who is promised with within this and then lastly he says he says why let us consider how to stimulate one another, verse 24, to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. What was happening is living a full life of faith stimulates one another. I hear people all the time, I don't have to go to church. Do you go to church? No, I don't go to church. Are you a Christian? Yeah. Okay, you're a Christian, but you don't go to church. Yeah. What do you do with the command here in 24 and 25? It says, let us... Not forsake the assembling of saints that has become accustomed to some. What was the sum? It was the, these people that were leaving the, the Christian body here and they were going back. Now, we've got to understand the life of faith will stimulate faith in the life of other people. Your life of faith will stimulate faith in the life of other people. We need each other. We need to hear about these things. I got a text message this morning for our men's study for a guy. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't have permission. But we, but he he moved to uh, out of state, and he sends his text message. He's on his way going into surgery for a double bypass. I haven't seen him for a number of years, but he knows that our men's group meets on a Wednesday morning, and he calls in for prayer. So what do we do, guys? We stopped and prayed. So well, let me know how it goes. His wife sent me a text message just before the service. He was so blessed he didn't get a double bypass. He got a quadruple bypass and a valve replacement. And is doing good. Answered prayer. Now, he's in a different place, but is he forsaking the assembling of the saints? No, because he's still connected in prayer. But what ends up happening is... is Satan will cause this desire to, to deviate, to drift. His deception is to stimulate divisions. 
to get Christians fighting against Christians and to move them out. The body of Christ is not to be separated. The hand cannot say to the foot, I don't want you around anymore. Can you imagine what would happen if your foot said, hey, you know what, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. You've got a little problem. Can you imagine what would happen if your heart said, I don't like being inside the body never seen. I think I'm going to go find someplace else to live. How's that going to work for you? There are some parts that are seen, some parts that aren't seen. But all are important. And, and the problem with the forsaking of the assembling together is we can't stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. That's the purpose. That word stimulate means to cause to change, to provoke, to encourage, coach, to love and to good deeds. Proverbs 27:17 says this, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of another. And when you take a couple of pieces of iron that's going to be working and getting sharp, what ends up happening when you do that? There's always going to be some what? Sparks. Friction. Heat. But you know what? If it's done right, you're better for it. And it's always not going to be easy. But in love and good deeds, it's always going to be good. You need to be together. Not to be in church as a social club. The church is not a social club. The church, by design, is a body. Practically, I call it a hospital. It's where broken and sick people come together to encourage one another to be better, to get better, to help each other out. The problem with the the Jewish Christians is they were being so persecuted by Rome, and they thought, well, we're going to pull out, and we're going to separate ourselves from this church that's being persecuted, so the target's not on our back. Satan says, good, now I've weakened the church. One of the worst things that can happen is you get all bent out of shape and you leave. It weakens the church. We need to stay connected to one another to be able to do that and not forsake the assembling that that is there. And the church practice was was pretty awesome. We can't do it today. We could do it, but it's not really practical. But the early church practice was to get together and to meet in homes for a meal, teaching, and prayer, and communion, which we're going to do in a little bit. They would do it on the Lord's Day, and they would do it in small groups throughout the place. Why? Because they didn't have any big buildings. But as the church grew, it became more practical to do it in a big building. Hence, you had the, the bigger, bigger groups. When we went out to, um, I was, believe it was Ephesus, where we saw some of the first church buildings that were there, outside of that, to be able to be in that place to see the baptism that was there. Acts 2, 46 and 47 says this, Day by day, continuing with one, with one mind in the temple and breaking in bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was, note, adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Jewish Christians at Pentecost at this time, they were still celebrating Shabbat. But then the next day, they were celebrating the Lord's Day. They'd go together and they would fellowship as Jewish new believers in Shabbat at the temple. But then the next day, they would celebrate the Lord's Day and they would listen to teaching and prayer and and communion on them. They would do that every week. And again, as a faith community, they needed to get to a place. Hebrews 3.13 says this, 
but encouraging one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That last part of that verse is super important. Your day-to-day connection with believers is essential. Why? Because as we talked on Sunday, the Holy Spirit in me talks to the Holy Spirit in you, and there's a connection and a sharpening and an encouraging that will keep you from being deceived by sin. You don't believe me? Consider all those times when you drifted away. You go on vacation or you drift away and you stop hanging around Christians. What is your Christian walk like? It starts to deteriorate. Because you're out of fellowship. Word fellowship, koinonia, to have in common. You know, and, and, and we need that. We need to be in that place as much as possible. When I first got saved and I first became a Christian, I couldn't get enough of church. I remember I went, I went forth at Calvary Costa Mesa you know, and I got saved and then I went to Calvary Downey. It was closer to my house and started going there. And I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night for our young adults study, Wednesday night for the midweek study, and then Friday night all the Christian groups were hanging out and doing whatever we were going to do. We were going to concerts and, and back then Christian concerts was the thing. Like you could go out and you could see all these Christian concerts. Every Friday night, there was another Christian concert somewhere at a church and it was free. Which is good. Free's good. And they were packing out. Now, I was in, I was in the generation with bands like Striper and, and some, of, some of the Christian hair bands and, and all of that. And it was amazing and I grew. The other thing that happened, though, is uh, Offset Pressman, when I was printing during that day, there was a radio station called K-Wave. K-Wave had Bible studies from pastors. Every 30 minutes there was a new Bible study, another teaching that was going on. And eight hours a day I listened to that. I couldn't get enough and just soaked it all in. And what that did was that, in one way, transformed my life. In the other way, it kept me from sin. You know, it's really hard to, to sin when you're listening to God's Word. Right? There's a conviction that goes on. And it's healthy. It's really hard to sit when you're hanging around with, with other Christians. And living in community is so important. The church body is a church family. Are there a lot of broken families in our world today? Yeah. And the church needs to be that surrogate family. We need to be proactive. Notice how he says, consider how to stimulate one another. And there's an acronym I'm going to give you. Think. T-H-I-N-K. How can we stimulate one another to love and good needs? It means you have to think about how you're going to stimulate that person to a love and a good deed. That means you need to be proactive. We are reactive people. But if you look at it and you say, hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm, there's Joe over there. How am I going to stimulate him to love and good deeds? I need to think about this. I need to think about what I'm going to say. So the acronym THINK stands for T. Is it truthful? H. Is it helpful? I. Is it inspiring? N. Is it necessary? K. Is it kind? We need to think before we speak. Run it through that filter. The early church was not perfect. And the place of sanctuary of faith was, was a place where we could all come together under one faith. Within that. The problem is... When you apostatize or you turn your back on that, you start getting infected by the world within that. 
There are many that come to church and they leave the church. John would say this about those people in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were not of us at all. There will be people that come into fellowship and leave fellowship. There will be people that come in close to Christianity, come into the faith, and they'll leave. Why? Because they're not converted. And, and, and they, they haven't been transformed by that. They don't fit. It's the heart that has to be changed. And the righteousness of Christ needs to transform them. Satan's deception is, you don't need church. I can tell you this, having been a pastor for many years, you, abs- you need church like you need air. And I'm not talking about the institution. I'm talking about the body of Christ. The ecclesia. You need the ecclesia, those that are called out of the world, like you need air. Why? Because they are your people. They're going to help you through this very difficult world within this. What happens if we abandon that faith? Verses 26 to 39. It's a danger. He says this, For if we go on sinning, Willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of the judgment and the fury of fire which consumes their adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy of the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will, he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant? by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember, the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizures of your property, knowing that you have yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come, will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to preserving the soul. So, the first point is a really hard one. This is a hard statement. Because we're in the church age, in the age of grace, we want grace. We want love. You can have a God of love and a God of grace, but you also have to understand you have a God of judgment and holiness within this. Forgiveness has no benefit for the deliberate sinner. You're saying, what does that mean? It means what it says. The deliberate sinner will never benefit from forgiveness. Why? Because he's rejecting the very God that can give him the forgiveness. It's not going to have a benefit for him. You can't say, well, he's forgiven and keep on sinning because he's never accepted him to begin with. The text 
clearly says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for their sin. There are those people that are marginal to Christianity or marginal to being transformed. These are the ones that are sitting on the outskirts. And there's a lot of people in churches that are like that. That are marginal. In other words, they have the head knowledge, but they don't have the heart transformation. I got it here, but it's not here. I got it here, but if I keep on sinning, and, okay, I'm going to keep on sinning, and I'm just going to go offer a sacrifice according to what the Jewish custom would be, then I'm okay. God says, no, you're not. You're not transformed. These are, again, these words are hard. The truth is this. Either Jesus is your high priest or he's not. Either Jesus is your Lord and Savior or he's not. Either you're in Christ or you're not. It's only one of two conditions within this. And who declares whether or not you're in Christ? God does. If you come to him with a sincere heart, he will not cast you out. It's a promise we just covered. But if you don't come to him with a sincere heart, if you come to him with some kind of religious hoop jumping, and you go on sinning, he's like, you're in judgment. You're going to be dealt with. This, this knowledge of the truth. The only sacrifice for sin is Jesus. It's not going to be goats and bulls and doves and incense and all of these other things. That's not going to work. And he paid that price with his blood. And a false faith is a dangerous faith. Why? False faith presumes that you're saved because you're in proximity to the cross. But you've never identified as being dead with Christ on the cross. Romans chapter 6. I've died with Christ. I identify as being dead in Christ buried with Him and rose again. The proximity just means you're just close enough to see it. We understand that there's a lot of people that are like that. They have a form of religion, but there is no relationship. Who's going to know that? You and God. But you've got to check your heart. Before we have communion tonight, and the bread and the cup, we have to consider our heart. What does this bread mean for me? What does the cup mean? Did Jesus really die for all my sin? I can say that yes, wholeheartedly. I have identified with Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I have been baptized outwardly and identified with Him in that way. I have declared that publicly. We've got to understand that God is serious and salvation is a serious business. He uses an analogy of the lesser versus the greater, verses 28 on. He says, if anyone who sets aside the law of Moses, you're going to be judged. In other words, the law of Moses was a lesser law. So if you go out and you willfully violate the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, then you can be put to death. Agreed? Yeah. Numbers 15, 32, 35 says this. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood, note, on the Sabbath day. Is that a law violation? Did he know better? Absolutely. 
Those who found him gathered the, gathering the wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside of the camp. For picking up sticks. Wow. That's harsh. Where's the God of love? Where's the God of grace? The God of love and God of grace showed up in Egypt to pull them out. The God of love and God of grace gave them conditions by which they should obey. This man willfully went out. And the congregation was to stone him. Why? To teach everybody in the congregation that God's not messing around. That God will enforce the law. What happens with a lawless society? What happens when a society accepts lawlessness as a norm? Anarchy. Can we relate to anything that's like that in our world today? And when you have to pick up a stone and put a guy to death because he was violating God's law, you're going to think twice about doing the same, are you not? The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a severe judgment within this. We should never, ever mistake the grace of God for condoning sin. Never. God does not condone sin. God forgives sin by His grace and His mercy. The writer of, of Hebrews quotes Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 32:35, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. When we take a look at the book of Revelation, is that the wrath of God being poured out on the world? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Divine retribution is a thing, and we studied it through the whole Old Testament. It was there. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is terrifying to be in that place. We should be in that place of great fear. But our world does not, they're not afraid. The Bible calls this place of, of judgment a lake of fire, eternal damnation. It's a, it's a legitimate place that's there. In the Jewish culture, there was a place called Gehenna. It was the Valley of Hinnon. In the Valley of Hinnon, it was a trash heap that was always burning and it was just outside of uh, Mount Zion down, down across the valley that was there where maggots were there and, and dead bodies were in the trash. Jesus points to it as a place of judgment. Mark chapter 9, 47, 48. Where he says, If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. Jesus says, look it. If you're having a problem with your eye offending you, you're looking at people you shouldn't be looking at with lust, pluck it out. Say, that's harsh. You've got to deal with the sin. Or if your hand causes you to sin, deal with it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 says this, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Eternal torment. Judgment. Does the world fear the judge, judgment of God today? No, because they don't even acknowledge His existence. But I can tell you this, every insurance company does. How do I know that? 
What is that line that they write in the insurance clause? We will insure you up to what? An act of God. <laughs> it's amazing how an, how an atheist company can all of a sudden become a believer when it, when it benefits them financially. An act of God. We got floods down in Southern California. We got rapid fires in, in Chile right now that are out of control. Wars and rumors of wars and all of these things that are going on. And yet man does not fear God. What a fool. And it's going to get a lot worse. We're, going to, we're not going to get to chapter 11, which is okay because I want to take our time in getting through it. But I do want to end on a positive note. Because this is kind of a kind of a, a place where we need to be, is understanding thirty six to thirty nine. If you look at thirty six, he says this. As we take a look at it, he says, uh, "Where am I? For you have need of endurance." Let's see. I'm sorry. Verse thirty two. But remember the former days when you, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly being made public spectacle and reproaches and partly become sharers. If you look at verse 32, there's that word that I like. It's called but. But. Verse 39 says, we are not those people. He's encouraging these readers to think back and he says, but you're not these. You're in danger of abandoning your faith like these unbelievers, but you're not there. You're in danger of walking away of, and, and following the people that, that are following you, but you're not there. So how do I refresh my faith? How do I refresh my faith? Go back when you felt and you were in and you experienced the presence of God. Go back when you were persecuted and had hard times and you saw God show up. He writes to them and he says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, when you came to faith, you endured great conflicts and suffering, a public spectacle, and, and because you were sharers of that faith, and you, and you showed sympathy towards the prisoners, when God was working mightily, when you had tribulation and trial, and you saw God give you victory. Remember that. How do I refresh my faith? Go back to the time when your faith was fresh. And remember that. Church of, of Ephesus says, return to your first love. Do those works again. Don't throw away your confidence in Christ. He says this, yet a little while who is coming will come and my righteous ones shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.3 and 2.4. He says this, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries for now, for it will certainly come and not delay. There's these days that are coming. Therefore, Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, a proud one, my soul is not right for him, but the righteous shall what? Live by faith. Church, things are going to get bad. The world is going to, is going to oppress. It's going to, it's going to push. It's going to become difficult. Do not throw away your faith. It will sustain you. It will carry you. Why? Because you've been placed in Christ. 
Trust in God. Trust in the completed work that Jesus has done for you. Your faith will hold you firm and keep you from slipping. Your faith will keep you planted. Why? Because the Word of God is a solid rock. He says, My soul has no pleasure with those that shrink back. It's a nautical term. The word shrink back there was used at the time when they would take the sails and they put slack in the sails and let them go down as they were underway. But when you do that, the ship is no longer under power and what does it do? It drifts. Keep the sails tight. Let the sails be full. Let the Holy Spirit move you and do not drift in your faith. Next week we're going to pick up with chapter 11. And we're going to see examples, a lot of examples, of people that did not drift, that did not abandon their faith or walk away. These are the people that are set up for us. And as chapter 12 says, a great cloud of witnesses that are watching us. Right now we're going to enter into a time of, of fellowship through communion. This time that, that we set aside once a month, as is our practice, both on Sundays and Wednesdays, to remember what Jesus has done. The bread representing His body and the cup representing His blood because He said so. The night before He died, He said, take this bread. This bread that is broken for you will remind you of My body. And as often as you eat this bread, for us tonight it's a piece of cracker, Remember me. What are you remembering? As we have this time of communion, what does it mean to you? As you take this bread and you hold it, what does it mean to you to know that all of your sins were put on Jesus and judged at the cross? What does it mean to you to know that three days later when He rose up from the dead, that He is the first fruits of the resurrection, and you too, when you die, will rise again just like Him, perfect. What does that mean to you? We want to, we want to meditate about this. And the cup. What does it mean to you to have every sin, past, present, and future, completely washed away? No longer held to your account. What does it mean to you to stand before a holy God? Holy. And even if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart. What does that mean to you? Taking these elements is not a ritual. It is an act of worship. And during this next song, feel free when you're ready. Come up, take a cracker, take the cup. Wait till everybody's been served. Go back to your seats and wait. We're going to take it at the end all together. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this time that we can worship you. Lead us, Holy Spirit, in this time that we can reflect on the, on, on the power of the blood to cleanse us from all sin and, and the significance of the body that our sins are paid for at the cross. And may we honor you with our voices and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I come 
stand before the Lord. God, we thank you for this bread. This symbol of, of righteousness. And though this bread is broken, we've been made whole. Though this bread has, has been pierced, and Lord Jesus, we know your body was pierced for our sins led through the streets of Jerusalem, humiliated by man, rejected by your own people. Well, that wasn't near as, as painful and suffering as by receiving the wrath of, of your Father. That should have been ours. Lord Jesus, we hold this bread. We identify with you and your death your burial and resurrection. We, we thank You that our life is hidden in You and guaranteed unto an eternal life that when we leave this body, we'll be present with You. We thank You for this bread and all that it means. As we, as one body, receive this bread, we do so by faith and acknowledging You, Lord Jesus, our risen Savior and Lord. We thank You in Jesus' name. So I'll take the bread. Lord Jesus, we hold this cup up. We say thank you. This cup reminds us of your blood over 2,000 years ago that was shed for the sins of all mankind. It blows my mind to think that your blood was shed for me. I, I, I can't even wrap my head around it. 
But I can say thank you. And it's by faith in your promises, faith in your word, that you have declared me clean. That, Lord Jesus, you set me free. And whom the Son sets free, he's free indeed. Free from sin, from guilt, from shame, and from bondage. This cup reminds me of love poured out on Calvary and a love that endures forever. I thank you for this cup and all that you blessed us with. As we receive it, we do so by faith in honor of you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the cup. Thank you, Lord.
God, we thank you for your unending love. God, you pursue us even when we did want to get caught. Revealed yourself to us. And have extended your loving hand out to us to save us. We thank you for all that you've given to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice at the cross. And the blessing that you afford to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to walk with us in this world. Fill us in a manner that would help us to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And until that day that we go home. May we do the things that make you smile, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.